0: I had to characterize a typical day. I think a good CEO cares deeply about every person in the organization and takes responsibility, personal responsibility for their success.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. We are a show that's all about accounting careers, what it takes to start your career, what it takes to build your career, and specifically all the different career paths that are available to you with a background or education in accounting. Our guest for this week is Jim Wallace, the CEO of BPM, a top 50 national accounting firm. Jim was referred to us by one of our former guests, and I knew we were going to get a tremendous amount of insight into career success, but I got much more than I anticipated, actually. In addition to getting the story of how he progressed through his career, we also got some valuable insight on diversity and inclusion. We've had a couple guests speak on this topic before, but it's been a while. And with Jim, I was able to ask more of the practical questions about how they measure success in these efforts at BPM. We get into some good detail. Plus, Jim also shared some thoughts on servant leadership, which was a philosophy that was really ingrained in him at an early age by his father. We went deep on this as well. Not just on the thought of servant leadership, but what it means to be a servant leader in the workplace of today. I particularly enjoyed that part of the discussion myself, and I know you will too. If you find value in this for yourself, please check us out online. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all kinds of written and audio accounting career-focused materials. We have books, we obviously have other podcasts, we have blog entries, and now we even have video courses as well. If you're an employer, one of the video courses that may interest you is titled Hiring for Public Accounting. As employers, we all know that hiring for public accounting is a little different than hiring for accounting positions in industry, and we walked you through some of the nuances of hiring specifically for small and medium-sized accounting firms. Once again, you can find that under courses at whereaccountantsgo.com. It's titled Hiring for Public Accounting. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with our guest for this week. Here's Jim Wallace.
2: Jim, welcome to the show. Well, Mark, thank you for having me. No problem. Well, for the audience, Jim Wallace, the CEO of BPM, a top 50 national CPA firm, and actually one of the largest California-based firms, is on the line with us today. And as an aside, this is just another example of the importance of networking. He was referred to us by one of our guests who was referred by another guest. And I think there might even be another connection there in the middle somewhere. So you never know where a referrals is going to lead. And in this case, it's giving us the opportunity to speak with Jim. I know we're going to learn a lot. Like I mentioned, Jim is the CEO of BPM, but he's also highly involved in diversity and inclusion initiatives. And of course, we're also going to get into some career success discussions as well. This episode is really going to be a valuable one for everybody. Well, Jim, before we get into all that, I think it's important for the audience to know where you are and how you got to where you are today. What initially led you to pursue accounting as a possible career in the first place? Um, Mark, I chose
0: accounting for a very unusual reason. I was looking for a career that I thought would support being a good father. And so I tell my kids, you know, pick something that you love because you do it all the time, and it's going to be you're going to spend most of your waking hours working. And they say to me, so you always wanted to be a CPA, and I say, no, I always wanted to be a dad. And I would try to pick a career that I thought would allow me flexibility to be with my children and would allow me to provide living that would support my family. And so it was that choice. That led me to public accounting. I was a dual major, a business major, and an accounting major, and I always assumed I would pursue the business end, but when it came time to do it, the accounting end seemed like one that better fit my goals about having a family.
2: Interesting. So you wanted to be a good father, and accounting was the way to go about that.
0: So it seemed to a 21-year-old at the time, yes. Yes. <laughs> Like I
2: knew anything in that, right? You know, we talk about flexibility a lot on this show, but usually it's more about present day than it is you know, back then when people were choosing their career. So thank you for mentioning that. Definitely. So what was the beginning of your career like? I mean, did you do a typical part-time job or internship in accounting and get started that way? Or how did you get that first job?
0: So no, actually, I did my internship, and as I said, I was a double major, business administration and accounting, and I did my internship, the business administration side. So I did not have any previous accounting experience. My father, which he will likely hear me mention often throughout this uh, conversation was a CEO of a publicly traded company. And so I grew up in a household with an executive, eventually CEO. And so there was constantly words of wisdom shared about leadership style and how to be successful. But that's not your question you just asked. So my exposure to public accounting was that the big eight firm who audited my father's company, I couldn't work there because he was the CEO, but they were kind enough to invite me into their office. And I spent four hours with the managing partner of that office. And we talked about the profession and he gave me pointers on how to be successful and how to land a good job, one of which was that I had to shave my beard back in 1984. and That would help me get a job. And so it was through that exposure with him that I first began and to understand the difference between public accounting and business accounting and business administration.
2: Interesting. Okay. Wow. So one of the things that interested me in your career, although you know you are with BPM now, you spent 25 years at another firm. And is it Riemann or Raymond? Is that how you... Pronounce that? Yeah, Raymond. Like everybody loves Raymond, the television show. Raymond. Okay. Okay. I think I wouldn't be doing the podcast justice if we didn't talk about that experience. I mean, just your know, your move up and you know the progression and some of the milestones during that because that was a large part, you know, of your career. What were some of the key milestones during that time period? And I guess how did your career grow during that time?
0: Well, I think if we start with how I ended up there, I started with Big Eight and found that after five years, I was not accomplishing my objective of being a good father. I was traveling all the time, assigned to the executive office in New York City for three months after my first child was born. And so at that point, I decided that I needed to do something different. And so like many people, I left the profession briefly, and I went to work at a financial institution, which was one of my specialty areas. And that was in 1989, 1990. Which, for younger listeners, they won't remember, but for those who have been around for a while, that was during the throes of the SNL crisis. And I went to work for an SNL, so I wasn't any brighter then than I am now. And the SNL experiment was a disaster, as one might have predicted, given the middle of a crisis. So then I went from there and I decided I really liked public accounting. I just needed to do something different. And so I found Raymond, which was at that time a relatively small firm, and a firm I was familiar with because it was from my hometown. And I um, landed there. I contacted three. Local public accounting firms had opportunities at all three, and chose Raymond in that it seemed to be the most entrepreneurial, fastest-growing of the organizations I had contacted. So the interesting thing about that is I was the first bench player that Raymond had ever hired. So when they hired me, I didn't have a particular assignment or role. There was no job they were posting for, and then things just took off from there. So I had some great advocates inside the firm. Who we can talk more about advocacy when we talk about diversity and inclusion, but I had some great advocates inside the firm who. Were Helped me be successful. And then, some stroke of luck or fate, uh, the partner that I worked for decided that he wanted to relocate, and he did, which then left me the largest audit book in the firm. And I took that over, which was a great jumping stone for me. And then from there, I became the head of the audit practice which gave me exposure across the firm, which then I was able to leverage that exposure into being elected to the board of directors. And then from the board of directors, I secured the chief operating officer position. And that was kind of the high level view of my career a couple of things I think that really helped me to be successful was one of the things I learned at the Big 8 when my partner there told me that in order to advance, you have to replace yourself. And I took that to heart. So throughout my career at Raymond, I always worked diligently to train those around me, those I worked with to take over what I was doing um, as I figured that that was the key to my success. have people who could do what I was doing so I could go on and do other things. I also was a big believer in another thing my father taught me is that if it's not illegal or immoral, then it's in your job description. So. I would do anything anybody asked or needed me to do as long as it wasn't illegal or immoral. So I ran the peer review program. I would travel amongst offices and help other offices that needed things done and uh, would always generally make myself available to get things done.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, I'm curious because I know business owners as well, but just managers in general have difficulty with that replacing yourself issue. And I think that you know sometimes it's hiring well and sometimes it's a training issue. Is there anything you can point to or any advice you have in that area, of, you know, things you think you did well or that worked for you to replace yourself so many times. <laughs> Yeah,
0: well, I think the first and most important thing is that you have to be conscious about it. It's not haphazard or you can't expect it just to follow. I I was a two-year person at at a big eight firm and I went into the managing partner's office and I said, what do I have to do to be a senior? And uh, without hesitation, his answer was, you have to replace yourself. I'll never make you a senior or promote you to any position until there's someone behind you to do the work that you are doing now. So from that point on in my career, I made that a conscious decision. So people sometimes tend to hoard work because, hey, this it's easy. I know I can do it. It'll make me look good or that kind of thing. When in reality, you need to be stretching those around you and helping them do things that are beyond their comfort zone. So in turn, you can do things beyond your comfort zone, and then that will just happen. And they'll be ready to do your job, and you'll be ready to do somebody else's job. So I guess making it a conscious decision is the best
2: advice I can give. Okay. Just always be working on it. That's a good point. I think we all get wrapped up in our daily jobs, and we forget to be training the next individual. That makes right. Of sense. So then you transition to BPM, and did you come on as CEO? Is that how that works? I did. I was
0: hired in a CEO. There was about a three-month period where the prior CEOs were still here, so... I came in in October, and then he gave up the job January 1st, and I became the CEO on the January 1st. So so my wife is a native Californian, fourth gen. We met in high school. I was here for a couple of years in high school, and we were high school sweethearts, and I dragged her to Michigan for 35 years. And she, uh, after our youngest went to college, she wondered when it would be her time to be with her family and be uh, in the state she loved. And I told her I thought that any time was a good time, and I thought I could get a job, and it turns out I could. <laughs>
2: It's a good thing you were still employable at that point. (laughs) Yes, I was still employable. Well, and actually, that was part of the conversation
0: because at that time, I don't know what that I would have been, like 51 or 52, but I was saying, you know, if I do get much older, people aren't going to be interested. So if we're going to do it, we need to do it now.
2: (laughs) So I'm asking this for myself, but also for the audience. What's a typical day like? as the CEO for such a large organization, I imagine going from meeting to meeting. But outside of that, I mean, can you be more specific? How do you spend your time or what are your, I guess, strategic goals? What do you try to get accomplished as CEO?
0: Yeah. So, you know, like anybody's job, a typical day changes, as you said, from day to day. But certainly strategy development and implementation is an important aspect of what I do. But if I had to characterize a typical day, I think a good... CEO cares deeply about every person in the organization and takes responsibility, personal responsibility for their success. And so my days are focused on, dictated by what I need to do to help everybody be successful. So on a given day, that's different. Sometimes it's minutiae. It's down to meeting with a specific person and helping them do better at something they need to work at. Or other days, it's big picture, macro policy focused or um, recruiting or training focused. It's really a big part of what I do every day. Business combinations is another big part. We've had some really good luck um, in the last 24 months in business combinations and several more in the pipeline. Um, So there's rarely a day goes by that I'm not talking to a firm or finalizing a memorandum of understanding or scoping out the next candidate that I want to talk to or have a conversation with. And then, you know, innovation and positive change. We're trying to be an organization that's nimble. And so um, I spend time each day talking about the firm of the future and what can we do to be ready to adapt and change in this, you know, amazingly fast environment, in.
2: Okay. And just for those that I guess aren't from that area, how far reaching is BPM? I take it it's not strictly a California firm or is it?
0: Yeah. So we have offices as far south as um, Orange County and as far north as Eugene, Oregon. And okay. we have a 50-person office in Bangalore, India. We have a memorandum of understanding signed with a firm uh, uh, in the Great Northwest. We'll be more specific than that at this point. So our goal is to be from San Diego to
2: Seattle. Wow. Okay. California is such a big place. <laughs> <laughs> Forty, 42 million people or something. It's a big place. Wow. A top 50 firm. Amazing. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion because when I first contacted you, I wasn't aware of that. You were referred, you know, there again by uh, Lindsay Stevenson, actually. And I wasn't aware of that interest and that obviously piqued my interest in our pre-show conversation. So I know you define it better than I do. How do you define diversity inclusion, and inclusion, excuse me, and let's talk about your efforts or your initiatives in those areas. Where do we start?
0: Well, I always start with acknowledging that at least for the last four years, I've been in California, which means I have California advantage in the diversity and inclusion marketplace. I mean, we are a very diverse and inclusive state. And so when I chat with people from the Midwest or the East, I always want to acknowledge that I understand that we have a huge advantage right out of the gate in terms of our ability to recruit and retain a diverse group. So I want to start with that because it would be unfair to compare our success with the success of others who don't have the same population to draw from. So with that kind of as a background, you know, diversity is much more than religion or race or those kinds of things. It's really about diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. And so we look at diversity in a much broader sense than maybe some of the typical kind of way that people talk about or think about diversity. In inclusion, when we talk about inclusion, we think about that in terms of making people feel safe to be themselves and that the organization is showing that we value them as individuals. So that's where the inclusion piece comes in is the feeling safe and showing the value of each individual.
2: Hmm. I'm curious, how do you promote diversity of thought and opinion? What are some of the strategies you guys have around that? Yeah, we
0: embrace discussion for one thing. We, I talk a lot about we have a meeting where there's not some healthy disagreement and debate and there probably was no purpose in having the meeting. That, that's one way we use tool software to allow people to ask polling questions. We have a all hands meeting coming up. we we'll have 500 people coming up at, uh, next week and there'll be some, multiple opportunities where people can submit anonymous questions and their comments. We do what we call town hall meetings. So we go to every office once a year as a corporate service team and then as part of that, there's an opportunity for questions from the floor and or anonymous questions. I tell our people, I'll answer every question you'll ask me unless there's some reason I cannot, you know, whether it's confidentiality or legal matter or something, in which case I will just tell you that I can't answer it for that reason. So that encourages people to ask questions. And I think that over, you have to build trust in a culture where they see it actually in progress and working. And so I think people have seen at this point that there's really no question that they can ask that I won't attempt to give them a clear and concise and transparent Answer. Okay.
2: How do you measure success in the inclusion area? I'm curious. How do you look across the firm and say, yes, we are meeting our inclusion goal. People feel safe to be themselves. Is there anything you can point to? or I'm asking because I don't know. <laughs> So we try and measure
0: engagement, which is a really difficult thing to measure because I don't know if there's a lot of information about what's appropriate engagement or what's not. So what we do is we set our own goals. So for example, if we're going to do a survey of our people for some reason, then we set our own goal of what we think was a good result or what was the result last year. And so then we need to be better than that result. And then we measure ourselves against the actual results. So if we're doing a survey and we got 30% respondents last year, then we say, okay, this year we're going to shoot for 40. And then we measure ourselves against that. And then we do things to encourage people to respond. We have an innovation committee, which we kind of run with similar to, you know, like a Facebook where you can make comments, you can post you like or dislike. And so ideas that we have for enhancing the firm get posted out on the internet and people can make comments or like or not like the particular strategy. So that's another piece that helps people be included. We have a women's initiative committee, which we're blossoming into a full diversity and inclusion committee this year. So that's kind of a catch-22. Do you start, with the big one and focus on specific groups or do you? start on a specific group and then, you know, move up to a larger committee. We decided to start with women and then advance it to a broader group. So uh, that's coming up this year. We'll roll that out, have that in place by the end of our fiscal year this year into a full diversity and inclusion committee. And then you can have subgroups, you know, and that also gets tricky because you don't want to exclude anybody, like right? A subgroup that I like to go to the beach on Saturday is as legitimate as some other subgroup that might be more popular or more in the news. And so you have to make sure that those groups are meaningful and that they're not, by their nature, that they're not become exclusive, right? So, you know, you're not trying to build walls. So we're in the process of adapting to that as well in terms of having strategic groups where people can feel like they can get together with like-minded individuals, share their concerns, and so on.
2: Okay. I don't know, given the amount of time you've been there, it's been about four years, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's a fair question because I don't know if it's something you've been working on since you've been there, but are there some successes that, you know, you've seen in your time there at BPM so far in the diversity and inclusion area or I guess accomplishments, you know, that you've been proud of for lack of a better term?
0: Yeah, so we have tangible results. You know, the number of women partners has increased. The number of women on our management committee is increased. It's almost 50% of our management committee is women at this point. So that's certainly one. If we are not already less than 50% Caucasian, we will be soon. So that certainly is something that we can look to in terms of ensuring that we have a diverse workforce. We continue to win a lot of awards, and I know a lot of firms do. And so, you know, awards are tricky. But in the last four years, we've won for our size category, most diverse firm in the country, best firm for women. I think it was 2016, we were the best firm in the country to work for, for firms over 250 people. So those are again, those are external monitored and determined benchmarks that we can look to. And we pride ourselves on being the best place to work repeatedly year after year. So that's important. The Glassdoor ratings, we look and monitor those closely. It's a good spot for people to have an opportunity to share their thoughts about you in an unbiased way. So we pay a lot of attention to that as well.
2: Interesting. Actually, so we've had over 130 episodes at this and I think you're the first person to mention Glassdoor and it surprises me because I'm seeing it more and more come up as a part of just everyday discussion. People share a lot on Glassdoor and people go there to look to see what's shared.
0: We actually look at Glassdoor too as part of our business combination due diligence. So um, we'll go to Glassdoor and a firm that we're considering joining, and the biggest thing for us in a firm that we might have join us is their, their culture, their focus on people. And we'll go to their Glassdoor ratings and ask them why it is what it is. And, and a firm that poo-pooed it and says, "Well, it's you know, it's just Glassdoor, and it's only people who don't like you who respond," and that's a tell-tell sign
2: of somebody's culture. Wow. If we get nothing else out of this podcast, that right there is golden. <laughs> you could sell that consulting right there. <laughs> so I can take the rest of this call off? Yeah, yeah. Well, not yet. Not yet. I've got a couple, okay. a couple more questions. Okay. I want to make sure we got to servant leadership as well, because you mentioned that. And, you know, that's the term we hear a lot these days. It's a popular term. How do you define it and what do we need to know about servant leadership?
0: Well, first thing that we talk about here regularly, and then it will come up again at our All Hands meeting next week, you know, we're a service firm, and I always want our team to remember that we use that term as a dual purpose, a dual definition term. So service in that we sell services, right? That's what we do for a living. But we also want to be known and hopefully known nationally as a service organization, that we serve each other, we serve our communities. We serve our clients so we talk about the three C's, you know, our community, our colleagues and our clients, and that our focus is serving them. And then when you do that, then you help the firm be successful and you can move forward in that respect. So that that's a big part of what being a servant leader is. But I really believe like, personally. So, again, going back to my father, the way I was raised, he would always talk about helping others. And if you help others be successful, then you will be successful. And as a matter of fact, if you pour all your energy into helping those around you be successful, then you will be hugely successful. And the amount of time or energy you spend focused on yourself And being worried about your career and ensuring you're doing the right things really is time that's not well invested, not nearly as well invested, if you spent that same amount of time helping others around you. So that, for me personally, that's my big push that I had the pleasure of doing a talk last week at one of the Alliance groups and we talked about servant leadership and the keynote speaker had a great quote and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but he basically what he was saying was is that Helping and coaching others to achieve their objectives and their goals is completely different than coaching them to achieve the firm goals. And if you do the former, if you coach people and help them achieve their goals, you'll get the latter and the firm's goals will be achieved, but it doesn't work in reverse. If you coach people on the firm goals and helping achieve the firm goals, there's no guarantee of.
2: Hmm. I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase the question. Like I mentioned, I hear servant leadership a whole lot, and I think that if you ask most people, "Are you a helpful individual, or do you try to help others?" I mean, almost everyone would say yes. You know, no one would say, "Well, I'm pretty selfish. I just look out for myself," or, or very few people, <laughs> you know, would. What blind spots do you think that we have sometimes as individuals? Do you any thoughts on that? Yeah, we do. <laughs> great, great question. <laughs> I think that human nature is
0: such that we are interested in self preservation and personal advance advancement. And I think that's human nature and I'm not saying that's wrong. Like that's what we do. Now there certainly are people who dedicate their lives to others. You know, we've all met amazing people who do amazing things. I think the majority of us, I believe the majority of us, just our human nature is, you know, I want to be able to take care of my kids a little better, or maybe I want to give more money to charity, or maybe I want a little bigger house, whatever that is. And so I think the blind spot is to think that those human goals somehow conflict with helping and serving others. I believe that they go hand in hand. I, I believe that the best way to advance and meet our human desires of advancement or self-preservation is to help others be successful. And that, that's the blind spot, that there's somehow that those two things conflict. I don't believe they do. I believe that they one is essential
2: to the other. Interesting. Thank you. That is a very good viewpoint. If we're constantly trying to help others to our own detriment, well, then eventually we won't be around to help others. You know, you can take that too far.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that as imperfect humans, I don't believe that we should necessarily aspire. I don't know that that's an aspiration that we can achieve, that we're going to be this perfect individual who dedicates their lives to others. But I don't think we have to be in order to be
2: really focused on helping others be successful. I think you can do both. That is good. Thank you. Definitely. Well, I know you have another meeting coming up. We had talked about that earlier and so I want to make sure I am respectful of your time and I get the stop point right. We do have three questions we end every podcast with, but one last question before we do that. You've had a very successful career, CEO of a top fifty ranked national accounting firm. I think a lot of people would say, Oh, you know, he'd never, you know, wanted to do anything differently. I'm curious if you could go back in time and maybe not do something differently, but give your younger self just one piece of very important advice. What do you think that would be?
0: Don't stress so much. <laughs> so, And I think the key to not stressing so much, especially in our profession, is to acknowledge that all the work does, in fact, get done. You know, I really can't think of any time in my career where we missed a deadline or somebody lost their job or didn't get their filing done on time, or deadlines move, team members step in and help, you know, deadlines that you thought were hard really weren't hard. And so, you know, early in my career, I used to believe that every deadline, every due date was the end of the world. And therefore, I would stress incredibly about that. And later, I learned and I tell others that I work with, it will get done. It always does. It will always get done then we'll figure out a way to get it done. And then we'll look back and say, well, can we have done different? And that we weren't stress. But that would be one thing I would share that I think people need to stress less and acknowledge that the work will always get done.
2: Well, you're the CEO, so that's a very generous thing for you to say, particularly when you know this is being recorded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I tell people that, so nobody will hear anything on this that they haven't heard me say before.
2: I love it. Well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions. The first one is usually the easiest. I like to start on a real positive one. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment?
0: So you had given me a little bit of a heads up, so I've given this some thought, and I really am having a hard time picking one. Part of that is I'm really a wee guy. I don't think anybody is successful. Because of something they did on their own, but I will share then a couple. If you don't mind, I'll give you more than one. I won't sure. give you too many, but one is that and this is a career moment. But I met my wife when she was 15 and I was 16, and we've been married for 35 years, and I'm still madly in love with her. And I'm very proud of that. So that's been a long time, and we've been together a long time. But going back to the work related, I think I'm proudest when I reached out to support others who maybe weren't the obvious choice, or maybe weren't ready for a position yet, and they've been hugely successful in that position, um, even though maybe they weren't ready quite yet for it. I'll offer just a couple of quick examples. When I was at Raymond, I interviewed a woman who had worked at a big eight. And she was a manager and she was moving to Saginaw, Michigan, which she didn't get a lot of big eight people. And I couldn't believe she was interested in working for us. And she interviewed great. And I made her the job offer and she came in and started and she came in my office. And she was very emotional after she started and thanked me profusely for hiring her. And I said, you must have an offer from every single person you interviewed with. And she said, did you not notice I was eight months pregnant? She said, no one offered me a job. They told me to come back after I had the baby or they just kind of ushered me out of the office, but nobody was interested in hiring somebody who was going to go on maternity leave in eight weeks. And I never even occurred to me, right? Never even occurred to me that that was a factor. But she was very successful at Raymond. She went on to be very successful in the corporate world. She's still a close friend of mine. So that would just be one example. Another one, uh, which is more in the diversity inclusion area, we had a searching for an HR director and we interviewed a bunch of people outside of the organization and weren't really particularly happy with any of them. And we had a 20-something person inside the organization who was outstanding. So decided to offer her the position, and she was incredibly hesitant Mm -hmm. and didn't think she was qualified and wasn't ready. And I called her up on a Sunday night, said this is an unofficial weekend call. I'm telling you that tomorrow I'm going to call you, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock I'm going to call you Monday morning and I'm going to ask you for an answer and you're going to say yes because you totally can do this job and you're going to support team around you and I will make sure you do not fail. And she's now a partner at that firm. So she took that job and jumped into it and did it. And the last one will be a current one, my chief of staff, you have had some dealings with Karen. Karen lives in Colorado and we went round and round about whether somebody could work remotely you know on a full-time permanent basis as a chief of staff for the ceo and um, i thought she could and so it's not been a year yet but it's been wonderful and she's been everything we wanted her to be and now we're setting the tone in the organization that people don't have to be in a building in an office next door to you to be successful they can be wherever you need them so that'd be i'd say the thing i'm most proud of is getting out of the box and helping people give opportunities to people who may not have exactly fit the bill at the time and i've never been disappointed
2: you know, that dovetails really well into what you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast in terms of, you know, you can't move up until you replace yourself. If there's not an obvious choice, that's just too bad. You're going to find someone and <laughs> you're going to help them. And they're going to they're do it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I love it. Thank you for the supporting stories. Yeah, that makes it more meaningful. Definitely. Well, you knew this question was coming too, so I'm really curious what you have for us. Tell us about a mistake you made and what you learned from it. And obviously, the bigger, the better. <laughs>
0: Well, this is a pretty big one in terms of what I learned from it. We'll have to see how that plays out. So back in 2008, we had done a bunch of work about geographic diversification. And we went through a bunch of different states and looked at population growth and demographics. And we had narrowed it down to Florida and Texas. And I, along with some others, but I was a key player in that decision, I chose Florida. And then, of course, We had the Great Recession. Florida had the worst economy in the country. And Texas was one of the few states because of its oil and so on that did not. And Texas has turned out to be a huge growth state for our profession. And Florida turned out to be uh, not so great a place to grow in for the profession. It turned around now, but in 2008 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, it was a real struggle. To do business, and if I could go back and switch those two decisions around and choose Texas instead of Florida, that would have been a huge difference maker. So that's kind of an operational one. On a personal note, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made is when I came here to DPM. And I, having been, as you pointed out, at uh, Raymond for 25 years, I knew everyone and everyone knew me. And there was a level of trust that only comes with 25 years. And when I arrived here, I underestimated the amount of that time and energy that I needed to spend with my new partners, developing that rapport. And I did that my second year. I invested that time and energy. But we would have had a more productive first year and I realized that right out of the chute. So that was easier. I can tell you what I learned from it is, you know, never take for granted the time and energy it takes to build trust and rapport with people and uh, overdo that if you need to, to make sure it's in place because you'll know, you have a lot more success. Hmm.
2: Thank you. Those are big ones and with important lessons. It's very generous of you to share those on the program. Thank you very much. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and start to wrap it up. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received?
0: Well, so I already talked about always replace yourself. That was a good one. But I'll tell you, about, going back to my father, in a hundred different ways, a hundred different stories, he always said that focus on others, focus on others. And we've talked about that throughout this conversation. So I don't mean to be redundant, but that's it. So, you know, his advice to me that you've always focus on others and not on yourself and not just for the feel good part of that, but because that's, the best way to be successful and feel good at the same time. To judge your success, you used to say, you know, you have to find your success in helping others be successful in their lives, not just at work, because they may not spend their whole life at your work, in which case, if you only judge it by work, then you're not successful. But if you judge it by how you help them succeed in life, then you're more successful. So it definitely revolves around a 100 different pieces of advice that would be best summed up in staying focused
2: on others. Well, I would have been surprised if we wouldn't have come back around to your father, actually, for the closing (laughs) time. (laughs) And then the last one that I also learned from my father
0: is your spouse is always right. So in my case, that's my wife, but they're always right. And the sooner you both accept that, the sooner you're both will be happy.
2: I heard you were a a smart (laughs) man. I'm a big believer (laughs) in that one, too. (laughs) You know, that's a whole other podcast as to how you maybe learn that the hard way or something, but we'll (laughs) leave that for another conversation. Well, beautiful. That really is great to end this on. Well, for the audience, this has been Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of Where Accountants Go. Dot com. If you haven't visited the website, please do so. We're going to have the show notes for Jim's episode. Plus, we always try to suggest a couple other episodes that are related that you may be interested in as well. And, of course, we have an extraordinary amount of accounting career-related tips and advice there also. That website is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Dot com. On that note, Jim, I always like to leave my guests the final thoughts for the podcast. So, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience or any item you'd like to leave them with?
0: Well, I started of being a certified public accountant. You know, I work in the public side, so that's the part I can speak to. People should get into this business for maybe a different reason than they thought about. Or they may perceive um, the profession. If if you really want to impact the lives of others, whether it's your colleagues, your community, you know, or your clients, um, and you want a job where you can have the flexibility to be a good parent, those are not things that I think we get a lot of credit for in our profession, but it is a great profession for influencing others, and it's a great profession for raising your children.
2: Beautiful. Great point. Well, thank you to the audience as well for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.